quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Greetings. You're listening to the podcast, so there I was. This is episode 87, our year-end compilation number two. So this week is our last episode of 2023, and we reach even further back into the archives to bring you some of the great stories from our first 85 shows. First, we'd like to thank all the veterans and active duty military and their families for the sacrifices they've made preserving our freedoms. From those who gambled everything in the earliest days of the American Revolution up to last week. Freedom isn't free, ladies and gentlemen. We know that. These people have written a blank check to us. So thank you. Thank you for defending our freedom and our way of life. Amen. Absolutely. And thank you to their families for all the sacrifices that they've made. So we'd like to point you towards so there I was dot us slash Patreon. And we need to really call special attention to Chucker this week. Besides being a great guest, episode 83, having an awesome call sign, and getting us other great guests, Chucker has now donated to become a tanker aircraft commander on So There I Was for five months in a row. That's wow. that's crazy. It is We've crazy. got to put our heads together and come up with a new level specifically for Chucker. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Maybe it's a chucker level. <laughs> <laughs> Brand right. poobah. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you got tanker aircraft commander, and then you got chucker, chucker. level. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we probably had to come up with something a little more official. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But boy, are we humbled, Chucker, for all your support. Wing commandant. Wing. Yeah. Well, thank you, yeah. Chucker. We'll do that. But we would like to, again this week, bring you a best of show telling people what this show is all about. And we're going to start with Chaz and what turned out to be an incredibly lucky night for them. And a truly terrifying experience if you spend any time at all thinking about what happened to them, leading you to understand how important it is to actually be playing on the same sheet of music when you're talking to other folks in in aviation. So, Well, you got that right. We're also... Going to hear more about killing livestock. It it it's it turned out to be a theme we had no idea or what three or four episodes in a row of this just came out yeah. of nowhere. Anyway, uh, Moose Moose, one of our guests who's a great storyteller. This is a story about killing livestock. It had to do with uh, white horse scotch and vinegar. Don't don't ask me why it was. It it was a practical joke gone really bad. Yeah, no. and we're gonna we're gonna leave it at that. Not to mention the fact, if you're uh, as a word of advice for anybody who flies rotor wing aircraft, sling load your livestock. Okay. <laughs> Note to self. Sling yeah, exactly. And then we're going to talk about an incident that caused the first U.S. death in U.S. airline industry in the last ten years on Southwest Airlines. They had an engine effectively come apart, and they had an uncontained engine failure. This then caused a fracture on one of the cabin windows, resulted in the death of Jennifer Riordan. And we remember her and share in her loss with her family. We also have to potentially point out just what an amazing job of airmanship that was done by one of our guests, Bonnie, for just rising to the occasion for this. It was an absolutely outstanding job that she did. They shouldn't have been able to fly that airplane safely oh. to the runway and I, I until I heard the story from her, I had no idea how close they were to actually losing that airplane. Right? Nor did I. By the grace of God and her previous experience gave her the skills to know what was happening with that airplane really and 
safely land it, which was a miracle right. when, you, when you find out how badly damaged it really was. Well, as multi-engine pilots, we hear all the time, uh, we practice all the time, V1 cuts, you lose an engine, all right, you know, and it's no big deal, unless the rest of your airplane is damaged to the point where it may not be controllable if you aren't careful. Yeah, oh my right. God. She, hydraulics and flaps. And, and she was a test those. pilot. I mean, yeah. The, yeah, those absolutely. two those two in that cockpit were test pilots at that point because they had no idea what that aircraft was actually flying characteristics-wise, what, what they could do with it. That's the best characterization I've heard of that ever. Yeah, absolutely was. And I don't want to be a passenger on a test pilot flight. Just no. saying. No. <laughs> no. No, and not only that, but it was such a great example of uh, crew resource management, you know, and she was so humble in how she talked about that story and, you know, that it was everybody that brought that plane down. Safely. She was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ice water in her veins is yep. what it sounded like. Nerve of steel. On, exactly. the, uh, on the radio when you hear the playback, it's like she's in the park on a walk. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As I've often said, I think I was more nervous last time I ordered a cheeseburger at the McDonald's drive thru than she was to right? the air traffic control. What do you mean do I want cheese failure. with that? Are you serious? <laughs> Come on. No, she was Wait, you asked me a like, question? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, great stories. Great That's stories. That's her book, Nerves of Steel. Go buy it. Yeah. So, hey, look, these are just some of the stories that you're going to hear this week. We're not going to tease them all, but I want you to know you're here some great tales. You got more lawman. You got Yogi and Master talking about the partial ejection that almost killed Yogi on his 26th birthday. Then our compadre Vapor finding himself alone in the Iraqi desert, managing to navigate his way through a minefield on foot after taking a uh, surface-to-air missile in the backside of his airplane. And then the brilliantly conceived and hardly executed landing of a Harrier on a mat, vertical landing of a Harrier on a mattress, yeah. <laughs> because its gear wouldn't come down. So, you know, and that that would have worked, don't you think, Fig? Except for the little thing called physics. Yeah, let's just say it's uh, <laughs> Harrier zero, mattresses one. Yeah. Yeah. The intake was on the front of the aircraft. <laughs> Finally this year, several thanks go out to Dave Hamilton, who has helped in the production of this show from the very beginning. Uh, he hosts three shows of his own, if you're at all interested in hearing. He has the Mac Geek Gab, the Gig Gab for musicians, and the Business Brain for entrepreneurs. Also, a big thanks to BackbeatMedia.com for our advertising, and thanks to Brad Silcott at BDSAviationPhotography.com for providing us with amazing aircraft pictures on our website. Yeah. And, of course, those gifted musicians. Mm. Who could that be? Two of There's them. There's two of them. <laughs> the Dos, Dos Gringos. Gringos. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, we can't say uh, we can't say enough about their music, but uh, we want to say thank you to them. First of all, they were a great interview on our podcast. They're they're actually very very funny and talented yep. uh, guys, singer, songwriter, snooze and trip. <laughs> yes, snooze and trip. We're going to end this podcast today with uh, one of their songs. I'm a pilot which is just absolutely hilarious. Written by a pilot for basically uh, everybody that's not. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm a pilot. I'm special. Yeah. Yeah. Just ask me. Carry my bags for me. Hey, they got four albums out there. You can find them all uh, wherever you get your music. Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Amazon Music. Thank you to uh, Trip and Snooze for sharing your music with us. They make some long days at work a heck of a lot shorter for me. I'll tell you that much. Right. So one last bit of business that we need to get to. Chase Cole 
has been an integral part of our show and been running our face group for us, now sitting at 448 members and climbing. It was 400 that? just a week ago. So that is truly amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, and I, I think we've probably picked up five or 10 more probably just this morning. So we want you to share the show. Let's make it to 500 before New Year's. But getting back to Chase, we've been violating one of our own rules, and that is he, he needs a call sign. And uh, I had initially suggested a Tron for because he's an aviation electronics technician, but Pete had an idea. Yeah, I was thinking Old King, you know, Old King Cole. But Fig, Fig just nailed it in one fell swoop. Well, I was, watching the, the I was watching the text messages go back and forth, and I'm thinking, how could they miss this? It's right in front of them. It's like the ketchup in the refrigerator. It's bago. <laughs> bag of coal. Bago. Yeah. Yep. There you go. <laughs> so, henceforth, he shall be forever known as bago. Bago. <laughs> Any advice before we get out of here, gents, for the year? Don't sit on the ejection seat. Handle. Don't do it. What about you rotorhead stair sticks? Oh, yeah. Don't let go of the collective. Don't what? Do Don't yeah. swear. Tammy Joe's going to punch you in the face. This here is a true yeah, story <laughs> about Rope crossing punch. the pond at night in the world's smallest cockpit on the tanker through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly. Fun. You just triggered us several questions I have to ask. So you're down at 400 feet at night. You're not wearing. I'm assuming you didn't say anything about night vision goggles. This was before night vision goggles, right? We did have infrared. We did have an infrared, a ship mounted infrared system. So we did have that. Okay. So you, you were using yeah, that and basically. You watched it on a screen. We okay. don't fly with it. It was just used to take pictures. All right. Well, so, so you're down at night over the water, 400 feet. Everything's turned off. No radar altimeter. You're using strictly your barometric altimeter. Yes. Oh, yes. Shit. Yeah. That's Cause the radar nuts. altimeter puts out a signal. Yeah. What are you freaking? So, what are you? Crazy? What kind of bullshit flying yeah, was well, that? Apparently. <laughs> you know that's dangerous? <laughs> apparently. Like, <laughs> later sounds... on, I found out how crazy it was. I know, actually, right? I was in a war game, <laughs> went a war game with you lot because there was, I think it was the NASA. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. One of the assault ships. Right. And he was out off of the eastern end of Crete. The Forrestal was off the western end of Crete. And we were going to have war games, and they were supposed to start at 0500. The next morning. And of course, you know how it goes. You know, win if you will, lose if you must. If you got beat, you didn't yeah. cheat, you weren't trying. Right. So we started considerably before five. So I got sent out about uh, one in the morning to start looking for him. So we did the same <laughs> thing where we shut everything down and there was an E2 sitting 100, 150 miles away giving us vectors. So I spent the whole night at 400 feet doing vectors, looking for surface contacts with an E2, giving us specters to them. We got everything shut off so we don't, you know, give our position away. But right at first light, we're in the ragged bottoms of some clouds. We're up in the Aegean Sea. And a little known fact to most Americans, but there's like 6,000 islands in the Aegean Sea. As the light's coming, I'm kind of looking out the front windscreen. 
through the clouds as they're breaking. And all at once I see rocks. Oh, and I'm shit. like, oh, shit. So I wrap <laughs> the jet up and start pulling. And it's rocks, 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 rocks. And finally see the nose of the cliff. And I see more rocks in the distance. So at that point where I see the nose of the cliff, I went wings level and just pulled up to try and climb and oh, get out of this. Oh, shit. And I finally called the E2. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, you just yeah. about got <laughs> us whacked. He goes, that shouldn't be a problem. And I go, what do you mean it shouldn't be a problem? He goes, well, you're you're at Angels 4. And I said, no, no, no. All night we've been at Cherubs 4. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, all night ass. long we've been getting vectors. Oh, my gosh. 4,000 feet. <laughs> For the love of Pete. Oh, um, shit. Yeah, you would have hit though. You would have hit a rock. You would have, hey, what, what's a mount go doing up on the <laughs> lights out? Yeah. That so there you go. That's That's the stuff. Thanks. So, so yeah, Thanks, just to be clear, in case anyone is wondering, so angels is thousands of feet, cherubs is hundreds of feet. Oh, yes, it, it, they do make a difference. Slightly different could be important to know. Yeah, and those islands apparently that we somehow missed all night, so that was good. Oh, that wasn't your time. <laughs> well, it is better to be lucky than good. We know that on many occasions. Every time I say, every but when your luck runs out, you better be good. So that's <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, look, you guys flew Harrier, so I figure like you, anybody that can understand what can go wrong will go wrong. You guys oh, have yeah. to know that. So sure. <laughs> I look back on it all. Like I said, those few years of life, everything outside of that seems pretty calm. I could go on and on and on with stories like this, and I don't want to do that because it'll get old. Jazz, tell me. Again, how many hours in the S3 did you have? Oh, what I have in the S3, about 2,000, I think, maybe something like that. I, I, maybe less. I don't know. I think I ended up with 276 traps altogether. I had the perfectly good timing that in one three-and-a-half-year sea tour, I got three cruises. Wow. Wow. Whereas my friends on a couple of the other boats got one cruise in three-and-a-half years, so... Right. We, we're, our timing was perfect. Well, and, yeah, yeah, did, did but, that perfect. Well, one story I should share to wrap up the carrier part of my life was how I got out of there. There you go. Okay. This one's one I have to tell just because it has to be told. I was the admin officer in the squadron on my third cruise department head. And I get a call about a week or two before we're to deploy from the detailer. You guys are, are obviously know who detailers are. Right. Okay. Just so everyone else knows, that's the guy that assigns you to your next job in the Navy, in the Marine Corps. We call them monitors. But, yeah, they were, your, they were the ones who were your career monitor, your career detailer. They gave you your next set of orders. And sometimes they could be your best friend or your worst enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sums it up pretty good. Well, he's calling to verify the rotation of all the officers in the squadron. So he's calling the admin officer. I answer the phone, you know, VS-30 admin, and he didn't apparently catch my name when I answered the phone. And so he says, oh, great, admin, that's who I need to talk to. You know, I just want to make sure we got the rotation dates right on all your guys. So he starts running down the list. Well, he's down in the list and he calls out my name. And I'm being a wise ass. So well, that did beat the, <laughs> right. The cruise was set to be in the Mediterranean for about four months. And then it was supposed to go through the ditch, the Suez uh -huh. to the Indian ocean for another three, four months. And I kind of knew when that was going to happen. 
I, I based the detailer, you know, gave my date as the end of the cruise after the Indian Ocean time. And I corrected him. I said, oh, no, no, no. He's rotating on this given week in July or whatever, August, which was when we were scheduled to go through the ditch. And the guy goes, oh, OK, I'll make the change. Oh, he didn't catch it. Then I just went with it. And next thing you know, I was somehow on a cod leaving the uh, ship right before the boys went through the uh, ditch to the Indian Ocean. and. Dad. On my way to Pensacola to be a flight instructor down there. So, uh, that was. So long, suckers! <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I don't like scotch cheese. It tastes like peat moss or something. And I said, well, the mess tent's down there and there ain't nobody there. We'll slip down there and, and see what's in there that might mix. Right. So we went down there and we tore that tent up looking for something. And all we found was a damn vinegar. So the guy said, well, we can try it. So, okay, we took it back. Everybody got their canteen, old aluminum canteen out, and we started mixing drinks with that stuff. And I may tell you, the first sip of that was a shock. I have never, I couldn't explain what it tastes like. You'd, you'd have to try it. And Don't, we sat there. I'm going to take your word for it, no, Moose. We sat there and grimaced and ended up drinking a whole damn bottle. And, oh my God! And the one guy that had the bottle got <laughs> got real sleepy, so he's in his tent. And uh, we took him over and laid him down in his cot, laid him down, covered him up. And we went back out and just talking, nothing to do, you know. People looked for something uh, activity. We looked across the villagers that sit across the road. They're they're selling wood carvings and all the you know paraphernalia that they they bring out of the mountains. And saw this damn water buffalo tied up over there. So we said, well. Let's give that buffalo to him. So we went over there. Nobody's around. Untied it. Walked him back over. Walked him in the tent and put him nose to nose. I mean, he was right nose to nose with that guy sleeping. And when he woke up, he had his thirty-eight strapped to his chest. He whipped it out and put two two right between his eyes and dropped him. Oh my! God. Dropped him right. Oh my dropped, God. dropped him in the tent. Now, so we got twelve hundred pounds of buffalo in that tent. Don't know what the hell we're gonna do with it. And, uh, of course, by this time, people were waking up, uh, and villagers had come across looking for their buffalo. And so I tell you, our, no. our human relations crowd and the local villagers who we were very hostile. I can only imagine. So the, the end result was, I think the, we had to come up with a $300 pot and uh, that settled the claim. <laughs> so. So, so what you're saying is white horse scotch is expensive. (laughs) Yeah, yes, it is. (laughs) Oh, but it was it was hilarious at the time. But you know, the colonel didn't think it was funny. That may have been one of the reasons I may have got a Passover early in my career. (laughs) I I never found that fitness report to see what was on it. (laughs) How about that? So then I kind of left there and finished that tour and came back to the states. When I got back to the States, I had a, they were going to put me back in choppers, of course, but then I had an opening for somebody to go to radar air traffic control, Ratsy School in uh, Olathe, Kansas. And I said, I held my hand up. I'll go. Because I knew I'd go through that school, I'd get back and become a wing, wing staff pilot. Then I had access to jets, helicopters, anything they had on the flight line. And they also, sure. they also had to transition school for the jet pilots to transition to the swept wing, you know, the F-8 swept wing. So I did that, came back. And so I was 
I was great. I was running the GCA unit on the runway and doing air traffic control and flying. I could fly. Most of the time I flew a T-33 because nobody wanted to fly it. But I, you know, I love flying it. And Beechcraft flew that. And and they had. Now, where where were you? This is El Toro. Uh, Oh, in El Toro. Yeah, when I got back. And then also. So you left left the school, went to El Toro, worked for the worked for the wing. Yeah. The yeah went to the air, air wing as as a staff officer, and then at the same time, they were bringing the thirty uh, fours in. And of course, I hadn't transitioned to thirty four, but the wing commander said you need to get qualified, get recertified. You did in the F nine, but I want you to get recertified in that eight thirty four. I said, well, if I have to, he said, yeah, you have to. I'm telling you to. <laughs> so. So I went through their training, got recertified in there, not knowing why that they were putting together the squadron to go on that nuclear test with that Operation Dominic down in Johnson Island. And they were trying to put together qualified helicopter pilots to do that. And so all of a sudden, uh, I didn't know somebody stuck my name in the pot, not with my agreement, because I didn't want to go back to helicopters. I said, I was going to be a wing pilot for years. He's leave me alone. <laughs> so, so then they they put that that outfit together, and the colonel that, that was in charge of it came over one day to fly. He needed his flight time, and they I had a, a two hour test top on a to go out and just motorize and put some hours on an engine. So they wanted him to go with me, okay. and uh, I said, okay, that's fine. I said, you know, so. He was kind of a cocky lieutenant colonel, and of course, I'm a captain, wise ass. And so he said, they got in. I told him, well, this is just a two-hour test flight. We ain't going to do much. I said, you just kind of sit over there, put your hands in your lap, and we, you'll be fine. That piss, you talking about pissing him off. So never said anything right. about it then. But uh, that uh, two days later at happy hour, we was in a bar drinking. He was there. And, he said, how you doing, Moose? I said, oh, I'm fine. He said, uh, you, did you find out, uh, you know, you're going with me on the cruise to the nuclear test? I said, bullshit. I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are. So your name's on my list. And you know what? You're going to be my permanent co-pilot for the whole fucking cruise. Oh, shit. Uh, you could just sit there with your hands in yeah, your lap. Yeah, Is that basically yeah, what yeah, he's yeah, saying? Yes, and, I, and knowing him, I figured, by God, he would do it. But oh, he didn't, but it scared me anyway. So that's how I got back out of flying my T-33 back in the flying choppers because they needed me to go on that nuclear trip. <laughs> so so is, was Johnson Island, was that somewhere in the south? Yeah, yeah, it's down around Christmas Island, Johnson Island. They're okay. down really isolated. Okay. And we were just evacuating the people off of the island in case one of those things went off, you know, when they fired it. Okay. And then we'd recover the pods that were they were shooting through the explosions, you know, just to see what kind of reaction was going on. So, hey, I I, I got to back up and ask you a, a question about uh, your first tour in Japan. Where were you guys stationed? It, it was called Opama. It was nothing more than a, just a little helicopter field. Nothing there. And, and nothing geographically. Where where is it located? Is it uh, a big island? We were 30 minutes from Yokohama. So fairly north. Yeah, then. yeah, fairly north. Yeah. We were okay. we were good ways. We were our so, uh, chopper on uh, from Iwakuni. 
So we were kind of in the northern okay. part. Okay. And they, thank you. Of course, Fuji was interesting because we, if you were a HRS pilot, you you wanted to fly over Fuji because Fuji was twelve five, and the chopper on that chopper, the ceiling one, it was ten five. So if you went over <laughs> Fuji, you really made you know everybody thought that was great. But the problem was <laughs> the servos on that chopper had little uh, the servo had a little rubber boot on it that where the piston worked. And if it got a little okay. moisture in there and you got up the right out, and then all you had to do, oh, shit. your only choice was just to kind of float down, ride down until that somebody talked. <laughs> so <laughs> we always get a new pilot and say, okay, let's go fly over Fuji, you know, not telling him anything. And that would happen to him. It would scare, the, scare you very, very bad. <laughs> it was interesting. Just good. That's some good old fashioned rotor wing fun right oh, there. Oh, repeat. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <Listen>. <laughs> Chopper, chopper. Controls would freeze up. <laughs> what? Oh, just wait. Just go lower. They'll yeah, fall yeah, out. Yeah. You get down. You get down five or six thousand feet. You might be able to fly it again because it'll be thawed out. Oh so, my gosh! It was interesting. It was All right. Interesting. All right. So I'm, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to take you back. So you, uh, I, I needed to get that in straight in my head before we could go forward. So you, you're out flying H-34s in the South Pacific, hauling people off an island yeah. in case. Uh, yeah. A nuclear, yeah, nuclear uh, blast goes wrong. Yeah. And okay. they just declassified that mission in December of last year. And really, and oh, actually uh, okay. in December, some congressman had went through and they actually created a letter of appreciation and a medal for the people that were involved with that because there was quite a bit of danger if something that had happened on the, on that path. You know, we could have all been yeah. heavily radiated, but. It was awesome. It really was. Declassified last year. Wow. Yeah. And Je- I think December, and that's when they came out with, we got a notice from the Department of Defense that, hey, we just created this letter and a medal for the people that were really involved in that operation. But, but anyhow, well, I made nice. it through that. We got back to El Toro. And I said, well, now my, my orders are coming through. And I said, well, I'm here Jets again, maybe, huh? huh? No, they sent me to uh, Hawaii as a chopper driver. And that's where my buddy Ken got the same orders. And that's when uh, we did, okay. we were going to Hawaii to fly with the pineapple squadron over there to fly helicopters. So that's Ken yeah. Hawaii. Okay, that's where you guys hooked up. Yeah, well, we'd been hooked before through flight school, but this is the first time okay. we've really been, been together. Where were you? Was that out of that one? Was that County Oway? Yeah, Bay? County Oway. Okay. So there was there was several, a couple of stories related to that. I don't even know if it, the one that everybody kind of liked was talking about the cat delivering the cat. Yes. And uh, Ken had would uh, had a cat that he he's loved, and he was going to Hawaii. He wanted to take it home to Walnut, Mississippi, and leave it with his folks. Well, Walnut's real close to Memphis, the air station there. And, of course, I went through training in Memphis, the air station. I don't know why I didn't get a court-martial for flat hat in there. But he uh, he said— There may be a story he, there, but— <laughs> yeah, well, he, he said, why don't you fly my cat to Memphis, and I'll pick him up, then you just come back home. And he said, you, well, I'll get that T-33. I said, no problem. You know, we got good guys on the flight line help us all the time. I said, we'll, uh, we'll set it up. You get the cat ready to go, get a cage. I'll tell the guys what we're doing. And 
Well, you bring him out a third time. Nobody will know what we're doing. I'll have that T-33 loaded, and we'll just strap him in the back seat and go to Memphis. This is kind of a good segue, and and I I just I got to make this. I have to say this because I just feel like it's um, (laughs) so everything that you went through, and I I don't mean just this uh, these these guys that tried to hatch at you from Southwest Land and everything that you went through from starting with AOCS up to that day. I think it was in April of twenty eighteen, Flight thirteen eighty. Think about that. That is a once in a career. Well, well, hopefully hope never not. in a career. But, no, but yeah. what, you know, that, that's <laughs> right. a one-time career non-normal emergency that you had, and it's almost like right. It, it, it was destiny. Someone less prepared. That you were there that yeah. day on that flight. You know, based on all your experience and all your, you know, your especially your right. ability to make on and and I don't want to go into great detail because I, I you may want to talk about it, but just the fact that you you had the wherewithal to say, you know what, we're we're not going to put the flaps at fifteen because I don't yeah. think this thing's going to fly. You, you right. know, you you had that experience. So can we yeah, just get some high points on that? I mean, right. I mean that I mean that was a that was a you know, and I didn't realize until I actually I'm going to confess until I read your book because I had listened to other you know I listened to some stuff on the internet and, and of course I saw right. the press release from from way back when, uh, but had really no idea how significant of a control problem you had. Yeah, in fact, and, and then let me let me interject right. this and then hand it off to you, Tammy Joe. Sure. If you haven't, if any of the listeners haven't, I urge you to go onto YouTube and look for Southwest Airlines 1380 and ATC and listen to the conversation back and forth between the controllers and Tammy Joe and her co-pilot, Darren. And I say this in all earnesty or earnestness, earnesty, honestness. Yeah. Anyway, honestly, Are you creating words right now. Again. Yeah. My co-host here giving me crap about creating words. <laughs> I love it. I- I think I, I I can honestly say that I was under more stress the last time I ordered a cheeseburger at the Wendy's drive through <laughs> than you were telling approach that, yeah, we're on fire. We're going to need a longer final. You were so calm and it just it burns through all of that. And you listen to it and, and then understand what extremis you were in. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, please tell us about how, how you got there and and how, how it came to be nerves of steel. Well, I would say great crew. Darren and I had flown the day before together. And then we met the ladies, Shanique Mallory, Rachel Fernheimer, and Catherine Sandoval Mm -hmm. for the first time that morning. So second leg of the day, we were leaving LaGuardia for Dallas. And at about 32.6, we had an explosion, heard and felt it, and then it was like being hit by a truck, T-boned, because we just skidded sideways, pitched over in a dive, and did a snap roll to the left. And yeah, that's terrifying. later on, the it, it was pretty, yeah, the power involved in that. And finding out a little bit more after the NTSB report is in. And I just spent some time at Gulfstream. They had a safety stand down and fan blade off was their their point. And so getting to see a little bit more of it from the engineer perspective and looking at the 
I think it was the E-11 Bombardier out in Afghanistan that had the same thing. Darren and I thought we'd been hit by another aircraft because the jolt was so violent. There was no precursors. And both of us just grabbed the controls and slowly brought it back into control. And there was, then the Boeing 737-700, you know, your, your engine instruments are pretty good size and in a stack. Right. Engine number one, engine number two. And engine number one was obviously flashing. So we just assumed number one was dead. We just had a moment of time that we could see that. And then the shuddering. Southwest 1380, if you're trying to get me all here, static. Southwest 1380 has an engine fire descending. Southwest 1380, are you here descending right now? Yes, sir. We're single engine descending. Have a fire number one. All right, that's a 1380. Okay, where would you like to go to? What airport? Give us a vector for your closest. Philadelphia. We're flying 250. Okay, heading 250. We're looking at Philly. That's a 1380, Roger. We thought the hit would be it. But then this shuddering just kind of crescendoed and got worse so that we couldn't see our, our checklist. We couldn't see the engine instruments. We couldn't get our hands on, on the mask switch for a while. You know, it was a pretty rough dance for a little while. There was smoke pulled into the cockpit that was intensified a little bit by the cloud of condensation that was formed this roar that just grew to a certain decimal and and then it couldn't get any louder and it just <laughs> smothered Jeez. every sound uh, we couldn't hear our own voices let alone each other's and we sit you know a foot and a half apart but and then we had this ice pick pain in our ears that we both compared uh, on the ground later and i guess that was just the collapsing of our uh, station tubes when the rapid depressurization happened. And right. so all of that combined, it was a little startling. And we, wow. I, it's, that's it's like seeing, that's like saying the sun is a little bright, you know? Okay. <laughs> well, I, again, adrenaline here is, is pretty interesting when you don't, you know, you're kind of out of control of things and adrenaline kicks in and, it won't give you an epiphany beyond what you already know. There's no alchemy in it, but it does give you a recall that's pretty in, impressive. And it just, you know, thinking about different things that had happened, really different stories. And if we have time, you can let me know and I'll tell you what those are at the end. But it helped make some snap decisions on the way down. I tapped Darren on the sleeve just so that, we went back to just one person controlling the aircraft because we both recovered it. It's just a natural reaction. Yeah. But I, you know, remembering Air France and two people doing opposite yeah. controls and I made sure that he knew that he had it because it was his leg. And I wanted to make sure we stayed as a team that he didn't feel like, okay, no, now it's just the captain show, you know, that it was still a team effort. So I made sure he had it. We got our, oxygen masks on and we could talk and decided where we were going to go talk to ATC. Then I made a PA just thinking, you know, it startled us. I mean, even the fire extinguisher 
came unclipped. That's how hard the hit was. And, and then I made a quick PA to the back just to let everybody know that we were still in control of it, of the aircraft and told them we're, we're not going down. We're going into Philly. We, you know, we're pretty nose down for a while. I think we're about, I don't know, 5,000 feet per minute. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's, that's that's probably uh, three, three times the normal rate of descent. So it probably had everybody's attention along with uh, all the other stuff that was happening back there. Right. I mean, if you think about the atmosphere back there, so the fan blade that came off when it sheared, it didn't go out or back. It went forward because of the speed and created a sonic boom inside the engine, which is what peeled back the cowling, kind of like a banana peel. And the small pieces that came out of that boom are what did the most damage. The big pieces, the ATC said they could track, you know, part of the the rim to the ground where they found it. But the small pieces are what tore chunks out of the leading edge of the wing and hit a number of windows. One piece was that big buckle. There's only two underneath the 737 Mm -hmm. engine that keeps the cowling on. And that heavy buckle is what damaged one of the windows to the point that it gave way. Southwest 1380. I understand your emergency. Let me know when you want to go in. Yeah, we have a part of the aircraft missing, so we're going to need to slow down a bit. Southwest 1380, speed is your discretion. Maintain any altitude above 3,000 feet, and you let me know when you want to turn base. All right. Down to 3,000, 210 on the speed. So while this tearing of materials and it severed hydraulic lines and fuel lines on that side but that tearing never steadied up to be the same shuddering it you could hear and feel tearing of materials the whole way down so i know people including darren and i you know we never had this feeling of okay we've sustained all the damage and now this is what we have to fly it was constantly a different syncopation to the shutter and the noise and the sound. So people in the back, you know, they're hearing this as well. And then the, the rapid depressurization, you know, if you've seen a balloon pop, you've seen a rapid depressurization. And so it's air that equalizes pressure and it does so rapidly and with extreme force. And we were about 7,000 feet inside 70 degrees and it exchanged with 32.6, negative 25 degrees, you know, like that. Also, just having one window open in a car at 60 miles an hour, it's unpleasant. And part of it is because of the reverberation right, in right. your ears. And that 60 mile an hour wind hitting 60 mile an hour wind trying to get out the same port. And so we had, a, you know, around 500 miles an hour or so trying to hit that same port. So it was it was not pleasant at all in the in the back right. and and so that's kind of what we were dealing with on our way down and we were about ten thousand pounds overweight for landing and of course we practice single engine every year and the seven thirty seven is amazing especially after this flight I would have to say incredible that it can sustain such damage and fly it's a wing and but. We had enough damage on the outside, on the left side, that when we started bringing power up on the right side to level off going over Philadelphia prior, we realized we can't use very much power over there. We have so much drag pulling us left 
that at a certain point, the power, which still isn't letting us level off and maintain airspeed, right. is it pushes us that way. So we had to pull power a little power off. And that wasn't enough with the drag that we had to level off. So around there is where we found out about the injury in the back and what was going on. And you can hear on the ATC, maybe it's ATC or cockpit voice recorder transcript that Flaps 15 is what we normally do single engines at. 30 right. or 40 is a normal normal landing. But since I could see the wing chewed up, I really didn't know how much was chewed up what are, where I couldn't see it. And I didn't right. want to have asymmetrical flaps when I landed. And then realizing we couldn't uh, level off and keep any kind of airspeed, that we had to trade altitude for airspeed. Airspeed being life, because that's what gives you rudder authority and able to keep a balanced flight. Aircraft don't fly well sideways. They cause even more drag. So we had to fly at whatever airspeed we could keep our nose straight in. And that meant trading altitude since we didn't have thrust available that would do it. And so flaps five decision, Darren was incredible all the way down. I have to say he took over. I, he called out a lot of things that were going wrong. I worked with what was working right. We kept a good communication all the way down. He brought up ideas and sometimes we used his and threw away mine. Sometimes we used mine and threw away his, you know, and I just loved the fact that we could throw out, we could both throw out ideas. And if they worked, we grabbed them. If they didn't, they fell to the floor and we moved on. There was no pride in this, you know, and so I could see the chewed up wing. I was the one flying down lower he was taking care of communications, trying to make sure people were okay in the back. And so when he offered flaps 15, because that's what we do with right. uh, single that's engine. the standard single engine uh, flap setting. That's it. I, I had to tell him, no, I don't think, you know, I don't think that'll work for us today. And we, you know, flew 180, which was flaps five maneuvering. We had been making a lot of left turns into the, damaged engine and had to be really careful it wanted to roll over it was we'd get bank angle bank angle with just the slightest pressure to turn and our last turn was 90 degrees to the right and we kept on all the power that we could which still wouldn't keep us we were I felt like a pretty pretty much a Boeing glider at that point but we were still on on profile I felt like to make it and we couldn't turn right the tower controller or the approach left 270. (laughs) We didn't have the power to, we didn't have the altitude. We didn't have the power to do a left 270. And he said, the runway is behind you, which is a nice way of saying you're overshooting. And it's, then he goes silent. Southwest 1458. uh, Give me a best forward speed, please. And towers 185. That's already. Fairwing 714 direct peace out. Southwest 1380, you'd like to turn, start turning again. Southwest 1380, turn, just start turning southbound there. There's a Southwest 737 on a four-mile final. We'll be turning southbound. Start looking for the airport as soft to your right and slightly behind you there. And altitude is your discretion. Use ca
No, it's not on fire, but part of it's missing. They said there's a hole and, and someone went out. We'll work it out there. Uh, so the airport's just off to your right. Report Insight, please. Insight. South 1380. Airport's in sight. Southwest 1380, you're cleared visual approach. 27 left. 27 left and towers on 18.5. We're going on 27 left. Switching tower. Good day. And in the cockpit, whenever Darren and I went back to listen to the cockpit voice recorder at the NTSB headquarters, it was silent in our cockpit. And then there's just two words for me, and it's <laughs> Heavenly Father in a question. And Darren said, I knew you were praying. I said, oh, all the way down. I just remember, I thought it was a private conversation. And I remember thinking, you know, Heavenly Father, I know we did not get 30,000 feet down still in control of this thing and can't turn the last 90 degrees. And I mean, prayer for me often just takes that metal cage off my mind and I could think more creatively, more clearly. And Al Haynes' story came to mind where he used asymmetrical oh, yeah. thrust to right. get turned to right. line up with the runway. And I thought, that's not even funny. That's my problem. It's not the answer, but it really was. It was the answer. I pulled power off got it turned around. It put us below profile. I had Darren pull up the VMC on my HUD. So that gave me a three degree dotted three degree glide path and a velocity vector that I could line up with the landing zone. We did, but we, we immediately had to creep back and put the velocity vector towards the end of the runway to keep up our airspeed. When it got to the end of the runway, then we had to give up airspeed. And we were silent on the way down. There was horns blaring. There was altitude below glide sloop, altitude below, glide sloop, you know, whatever was going off. But because 180 is maneuvering speed for a nice, slick, clean airplane at flaps five, we were flaps five with all kinds of things flapping and, oh, and yeah. drag. And, and we were, like I said, overweight for landing, which means we should have had more than 180 knots probably. So we really didn't feel like our landing was assured until we touched down. And we came in, I'm sure, flat because we tried to keep it on the, you know, the pipper on the runway until we just had to start pulling the nose up and come in. And we landed between 167, 171 knots. Wow. Successful landing. Yeah. Yes. I know that we... We didn't do everything perfect by a long shot. I'm sure others could have done better, but I you felt know, like we kept it, our priorities easy to straight. Easy to money morning quarterback. Everybody's <laughs> decisions and yeah. yours yours were just spot on from you know where I'm sitting. And Fig, I'm going to say since you fly that airplane and teaching that airplane, I, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing you're going to use a lesson or two from this book. I am actually every every chance I get. Southwest thirteen eighty, runway two seven left, clear to land, wind two eight zero one nine, gust two five. Two seven left to land, southwest thirteen eighty. Southwest thirteen eighty, right turn when you're able. If you want to stop wherever you need to is fine. Thank you. We're going to stop right here by the fire truck. Thanks, guys, for the help. This happened in uh, 2007 to November at exactly 10, 11 in the morning. And 
Isn't it funny? Repeat. This is a this yeah. is a common occurrence when when we get guys to tell us a story. Well, you know that has a bit. It's a big story. They're down to the minute. To the minute, what yeah. day, what time, what what the weather yeah. conditions were, you know, what kind of aftershave I was wearing. Yes. I mean, so yes. I'm I'm not going to interrupt you more, Father yeah. Mike. Go now, on. you guys, you can interrupt all through because this this whole story has about a thousand pieces. But um, to put this in context, I, I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world. The only time I ever lost currency ever in the F-15 was on two November two thousand seven. I was. I went 20 years straight and never lost landing currency, never lost any currencies in the F-15 until this particular day. What basically happened was, first off, as Fig mentioned earlier, it was a beautiful day. We were scheduled to go out with a four-ship. We were going to take, uh, we were going to do ACM, which is air combat maneuvering. But number four, he did not have 30-day currency, so he couldn't do ACM. So we said, all right, this is what we're doing. We'll all brief up together and we'll take off together and we'll hit out the airspace and we'll split up to two separate two ships and then we'll go ahead and we'll do separate BFM, basic fighter maneuvers is is the plan. And on this faithful day, what happens is we brief up, everything goes good, you know, beautiful day in St. Louis. We take off at the 950 local and it's a classic St. Louis fall day, clear in a million, 10 plus miles, not a cloud that he's had. Jets are clean. Climb up to the block, 2022, do all our checks and head out to the MOA. We get to the airspace, split off. I tell three and four, you guys go to the west side of the airspace, one and two. Uh, we're going to take the uh, center, my wingman. We're going to take the center. So uh, that day, our call sign is uh, Mick one, two, three, four. I'm Mick one. I'm squadron commander. Uh, One of our young guys, Mick two, we call him a young guy. He only had 1500 hours in the Eagle, but compared to the rest, compared to the rest of us, he was a baby. I had at the time, I think I had like a little over 3,800 hours in the Eagle. Wow. As we, as we go on out, he's in aircraft tail. He's a C model, single seat. I'm in a single seat. He's in tail uh, 80034. And the reason I know that is because I have the gun barrel is up in my office chromed as a, uh, as a nice gift. Yeah. The gun barrels from that airplane. The gun barrel is from that airplane. Okay. okay. And this was that fateful day that I don't know if uh, you guys heard in the Marine Corps, but it was that fateful day that the entire, because of this sortie, the entire F-15 fleet, A's, C's, E models and every F 15 flown in the world were grounded. Nice job, Father. <laughs> because, exactly, because they had no idea what the hell just happened, because what had just happened had never happened in the history of anything. So we go out, and he wants to do offensive basic fighter maneuvers. So I'm defensive. So we're going to do the first set. We're going to do a what's called the 9,000 perch. And for the viewers, you start basically two miles line abreast. And I call check left 45. So we check left 45. So now I'm out front. He's pointing at me. He gets a radar lock on me. As soon as I hear the spike, I reverse my turn. We're at 18,000 feet. And he's counting down 12,000, 11,000, 10,000, then fights on. And his goal is to try to employ missiles and employ the gun on me. 
So we do the first set and it goes okay. Not great. He can do better. So we're down at around 5,000 feet. When we're doing a slow climb back up to 18,000 feet, I do a fuel check. And I'm like, you want to do that again? I go, I think I said, you want to see that again? He's like, yeah, I'm going to see that again. So we go, okay. And we start the, uh, I call check left. And I get the spike. I reverse my turn. I'm in a right-hand turn at 18,000 feet. I'm doing 430. He 430 counts, knots. 430, 430 knots. knots. Yeah. Yep. Okay. He's counting down 12,000, 11,000, 10,000. At 9,000 feet, he calls fights on. So I continue with the right-hand brake turn, HEs turning into him. And I'm, I'm probably 10 degrees nose low, looking up through the canopy. And he unloads, rolls out, accelerates to 450 knots. And then he rolls, puts his lift vector right on my airplane. In the simplest terms is he puts his helmet pointing right at my airplane. And he dials up uh, HEs. He quickly... He quickly rolls out and unloads the airplane to about a G and a half and makes a, a knock it off, knock it off call, which as we all know, that's, if you ever hear that, that's everybody stop fighting, yep. cease, clear your flight path, get shit in one sock and acknowledge it. So I acknowledge Nick one, knock it off. Typically in that phase of flight, the knock it off is just usually like, knock it off because, you know, the F-15 doesn't have what's called a G limiter. So at that, when you unload and roll and pull at 450 knots, we get a lot of over G's right there where you overstress the airplane and you have to knock it off. But this time he makes a really panicked knock it off. So I keep turning into him and I'm looking at his airplane. I'm looking up at his airplane and his airplane's in a 15 degree bank, 10 degrees nose high. And all of a sudden, I see the, the nose starts wobbling left and right. And then within a second and a half later, the cockpit right behind the ejection seat snaps off from the airplane. So <laughs> Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this thing, it was surreal. And I, it is tattooed in my head for eternity. Um, I can explain every detail. But... It snapped off, the, the cockpit snapped right off from the F-15 about 10 inches behind where the canopy hinge, what's called the hinge pin is. If you've mm-hmm. ever seen F-15, you know that that hinge in the back, it snaps right there. Wow. So when it snaps up, he, the cockpit snaps up vertically. So the, the pointy end of the cockpit's pointing up to the sky. And his ass is pointing at the ground. And I can see him sitting in the cockpit. I can see he's got uh, his green G-suit on. He's got two, two white lineup cards, one on each knee. And I can see his hand on the stick. Could, um, you, could you see yeah. the cartoon question marks coming out of his helmet? <laughs> I, you know, th- this guy, I love him. He is, uh, his, his call sign's Crow. He's, he's recovered. He's flying for He's captain. He's doing great. But at that particular time, I, I could not believe what the hell just happened. This was just effing unbelievable. And everything. I, I, I got I to. So at the, right before the cockpit snapped in half, right before the cockpit detached from the fuselage, he was going in excess of 400 knots, right? He was doing exactly 450 knots. 
So when that when that nose when the cockpit snapped and the nose went up, now he's doing I don't know what kind of G is that in a in a I mean in a weird. Plane. It was it was insane amount of G's, and we'll, we'll talk about the injuries he sustained. But it was so many G's that it ended up. You know how strong the lap belts are on a fighter. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, he tore the left lap belt in half. Oh dear God. <laughs> Yeah, wow. so, so think it's about like, that. I, I would have thought that his body would have given away before the lap belt, but his, oh my. His, his body should have exploded, but yeah. uh, Crow is, he's a big boy. If it was my skinny ass, I would have I would have smeared like a like a gnat. But, but Crow, Crow is a, he's a big old Missouri farm boy, tough That's as what, nails. I remember you telling me that. If it was you, you would have been dead. Oh, I would have, I would have, I would have popped like a water balloon in that car. Oh. <laughs> well, that's you and me both, buddy. It was just unbelievable. Yeah. So at that point there, I, the, the only thing I can yell out is uh, eject, eject, eject. So I yell eject, eject, eject. And as I'm yelling that, I'm turning into his airplane and I'm slowly climbing up. And the cockpit rolls right. And then I see like this, it looks like a cheap Chinese firecracker go off. Uh, look, I'm looking right at the cockpit. And... The cockpit, it's like rolling like a, like a bingo wheel. It rolls back up towards me, and now the cockpit is just dark. He's, he's ejected out of the airplane at this point, out of the cockpit, because the airplane's gone. Yeah. I, don't, I don't realize he ejected, so I'm, I yell eject, eject. I mean, eject, eject again. And I climb up, and now I tell... My other two F-15s, who are west of me about 20 miles, I call on a common radio. I tell those guys, hey, knock it off, knock it off. Bud 2 just broke in half. And they're like, what? I'm like, I'm like, knock it off, knock it off. I go, come up my freak, get above 24,000, and come where I am, and I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. So now the F-15, the engines are still running. It's perfectly intact F-15. I look at it and it's it's flat plated straight looking back at me. It's the engines are pointing at the ground and the, where the cockpit would be, it's gone. It's just the two intakes pointing at the sky and it does a, a complete flip and then stops. So it just, just does one flip and then stops perfectly. <laughs> and then I look at it and the, the main landing gear are extending and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Well, <laughs> yes. When the cockpit broke off, it pulled the emergency gear extension. So the gear okay. free, so the gear free fell out. Oh, so then, funny. so then the jet goes into this perfect flat spin, just perfect falling down. The cockpit is off. It's right. Two o'clock, maybe a half mile. And there's all sorts of debris in the air. The, uh, the internal ICS boxes, which are our, our jamming boxes and things like that. I see those things falling out. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, where? But then I'm like, where is Crow? Where is Crow? Hey, Father, is, is yeah. all this stuff coming past your canopy? I mean, are you not flying yet. through the... Okay. All right. Not not yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is where I become dumb. I remember it. I, I roll up. I'm at about 18,500 feet. And now I'm looking straight down on the F-15 falling, the cockpit falling, and all the debris. And I can't see Crow. I can't see him anywhere. And all of a sudden, 
at about 14,000 feet, zoom, I see, I see a white and orange parachute. I'm like, yes, thank God he got out. Because up until then, I, there was, I couldn't see him at all. I didn't know where he was. Oh, boy. So now I see the parachute blossom out. I'm like, yes, he's out. He's floating down. This is what I want to say. So this is where I would tell viewers, if you ever see an F-15 break in half, don't take your jet, which is perfectly good, and stick it in the middle of the debris field. Because <laughs> that's what I did. Okay, so learning occurred. All right. Yeah, you know, you know not to do that again. I have to tell you, uh, everything I read about tactical aviation, there's no manual that says don't do that. So, yeah. so basically what happens is, I'm at 18,005 and I roll pointing down vertically. I'm pointing right at the crow's parachute. I'm about maybe at this point now, 5,000 feet above it. And I want to go and see him. As I'm coming down, I've got the throttles in idle and I'm doing maybe 300 knots accelerating. And all of a sudden I see this, I, I tell the accident board uh, in the, in the investigation in the following days, I go, all of a sudden, I see this big gray park bench coming at me, and what it, yeah, and what it is, it's it's about a six foot, eight foot side of the F fifteen that's been ripped off the jet and it's just floating down. And all of a sudden, it's it's I see light gray, and then it flips to that internal, you know, that lime green paint. Right. That, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I realize what the hell it is, and I am going to smash right into it. So I take the stick and I, I slam it into my lap. I bury it. So my nose now jacks up. I do like, I do like seven G's. I'm like, Oh, holy shit. <laughs> so now I look up and I tell the accident board, I go, now there's a beer keg coming at me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what it is, it's the, it's called the ECS turbine of the F-15. And what that is, it, it supplies all of our air conditioning and pressurization for the cockpit of the F-15. And it looks like a giant beer keg. And it is coming right at me. And there's nothing I can do. So I do what every fighter pilot does. I duck. I duck. I duck and it goes flying right over my head and you know, through the tails. Doesn't touch a thing. Right between the twin tails. Yeah. So, oh man. So I end up now. I'm like, holy shit. My heart's going. I'm like, whoa. So I so I go. Let's be smart about this. So now I just start a left hand turn, 250 knots above Crow's parachute. I go. He's going to be the last thing that hits the ground. Everything's going to hit the ground first. So I'm just orbiting above it, and then I watch the F-15 hit the ground. And it lands in this uh, massive wooded area. And it's like slow motion. It just came down, hit the trees. And then it's like a thousand one, all the trees fall. You see them all fall. And then you go thousand two. And then all of a sudden the jet just explodes. It had about, we were clean that day. We had no external tanks. So at the accident, we had done one set flying out. He had maybe say 7,500, 8,000 pounds of fuel on board. Wow. And it, and it just explodes. And then I see the cockpit hit and the cockpit didn't burn. It just hit the ground like a, like a bag of hammers, just boom. I just, that was it. So now, <laughs> yeah. 
And then I see uh, well, there's no fuel up there. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. So, th- so then I'm watching and, you know, and I see uh, a lot of the internal boxes hit the ground and they just look like little uh, puffs of smoke. They're just they're just impacting the ground. That's all. So now crows about maybe 9000 feet above the ground floating down. So I'm like, OK, I got to go. I got to go see my brother. So I come down and I start circling him. And I see him in the parachute and he's, uh, he's got his helmet on and tell the viewers I was getting, I'm getting really close to him. His, he's got his visor down, his helmet, his mask is still on. And he's laying in the, he's, he's all slumped over in the parachute. Oh boy. And, and I'm like, come on, crow, wait, wave to me, you know, wave a foot, do something, you know, because I, I didn't, I thought he was dead. I honest, my honest, I honestly thought he was dead because it was such a violent thing. Yeah. So now I'm like, I've got to see him. So I'm getting closer to him and closer to him. I'm passing him by like 50 feet. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, pumping him good with that wake turbulence. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. And I'm like, come on, man, wave at me, do something. And the next day, Crow's like this. He's like, he's like, you son of a bitch. He goes, I thought you were going to fucking hit me. <laughs> <laughs> So the opso thumper says, hey, lawman, he points to a jet on the flight line. He goes, see that un- blue jet out there with no number on it? He goes, take that jet to El Paso tomorrow through Abilene, Texas, Dias Air Force Base. That's our spare jet. Now we got you know spare pilots. We got spare single seat jets instead of the two seat number seven jet. It's yeah. a good deal for them. He goes, th- land and Dias 30 minutes prior to the team, not 31 minutes, not 29 minutes. And land in front of the team 30 minutes at El Paso. You got it? I said, yes. I go, what about how you guys launch? He goes, I don't have time for this shit. Go talk to a crew chief. Get that jet <laughs> to El Paso. And you know what his final words are me? No. Guess what? Don't, don't fuck, fuck it, it up. up. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Don't <laughs> yeah. fuck it up. I saw that coming. Yeah. So I, I go down and talk to a crew chief because the Blue Angels do a, a very choreographed launch. Right. Even You're if right. single. Every uh, time. It's the same time. way every time. Yep, the smoke and all that is very different than a fleet t- uh, Hornet launch. I go, so it's plane cabin crew chief talks me through it, and so I'm nervous as shit. I get the smart pack the team had put together for me. You know, it was a, you know, no wind smart pack for fuel and time and distance to Dias and then to El Paso. And I've got that. Follow my flight plan, Blue Angel, I'm to Frats, and I walk. And as a newbie, you can't wear the flight suit, which are tailor made by a shop in Pensacola called Feminine Flares, a ladies bikini shop. Nice. But the guy there had the contract, Sam. And you, you, you went to this ladies bikini shop, swimwear nice. shop to get fitted and yes. blue angel flight suits. It was <laughs> bizarre, <laughs> but you can't wear them. except for 10 minutes prior to walking to a jet as a, as a newbie pilot, part of the okay. you know harassment package. Yeah. So I'm wearing my Charlie's 10 minutes prior to, I need to walk to my jet. I go downstairs to the locker room where I put my flight suit hours earlier and all my stuff, you know, ready to go fly. And I'm on the clock, right? Yeah. I got to be there 30 minutes prior to the team and I start putting my flight suit on. I can't get my flight suit on because some other pilot has stapled all the legs and arms together with hundreds of staples. <laughs> Every, the arms and legs are stapled together. You can't get your arm or legs through this oh. flight suit. I'm like, what oh. the hell? <laughs> so, I'm pulling staples like a mother. Yeah. I finally get this flight suit on, boots, grab my bag, walk towards the jet. I got, I was pulling staples out all the way to El Paso, Texas. 
yeah. by, you know, pulling them out. I couldn't get them all out. Oh my God. These things are sticking to me all over the place. I get to the jet. I'm determined to fly the spring. I heard about the spring, you know, 30 plus pounds of force on the stick, the blues fly with. So I had to spring in there and I, I taxi out somehow more actually. And I take off first time in a blue jet solo cross country to Dias with a team 30 minutes behind me. And I flew that spring for about 20 minutes. I go, you got to be shitting me. These guys fly in there. So I go, my God, how do they, how do they pull G's? So just so there may be some non-aviators listening. So yeah. this spring you're talking about, it's like a bungee cord that has what, like Great 30 or 40 stick. pounds. It, worth it, of they can adjust it, but, but about midway through at least winter training, it's up to the final four is four holes. They can adjust the tension on, but basically if I recall right, it was four mechanical springs. It was like an old exercise. One of those bungees you'd exercise for chest, you know, okay. pull, yes, yes. Uh, tension. And they would take the electronic countermeasures, panel out of the, the in between in forward of the stick you know console yeah. and they would attach this mechanical device that some engineer at pax river came up with because they found out that the fly-by-wire flight controls in the f-18 didn't work well enough you would lose some backstick authority on the backside of a loop in some cases you know so the fly-by-wire logic with the full nose down trim they called it fnd every other blue angel airplane in the history of the team they flew fnd full nose down trim mm-hmm. Take the cool look at, run the trim all the way to a stop. Wow. Phantoms, A4s, F11s, we name it. And that gave you an artificial force. So you can hold yeah. still. The whole purpose is, is fighter airplanes, even go back to World War II fighters, are highly maneuverable, very sensitive. And you want them to be a highly maneuverable jet in a fighter combat sure. environment. You don't want to be ultra sensitive when you're flying two, three feet and sometimes closer, rolling the loop in, in close proximity to the jets. The jet's too sensitive. The stick's too sensitive. You breathe on it, it moves. It moves the jet. It moves you. You know, you're out of position or you're hitting each other. So you right. want this force that you either, I'm either holding what I got with a lot of force. Or I'm going to relax this little bit in pitch or I can pull this little, you could really finesse it with 30 pounds of force on a stick. It does yeah. work. It allows you to fly very close to other jets and control the jet primarily in pitch. You are really hold what you got without, you know, or re- relax a little bit or pull a little more. It really does work, but it's a, a bear to get used to. Okay. And, and, so, and could you, could you take the tension off? No, you couldn't take it off. You could actually trim more into it. They changed, they had blue angel software that was different for the blue angel jets, blue software, they basically called it. You could run more trim down. If you, some guys, the bigger guys, I never really did that. To be honest with you. I was really struggling with what I had, but a couple of guys like snooze, my you know, le- number three left wing, my first year, big guy, these guys were all my first year. The next smallest guy was six, two and two fifteen. Oh my! Then gosh. there was law man, five, eight, yeah. 145 pounds. Yeah. Of you, you, you and I were the same and, size at the oh, same yeah, time. Oh, yeah. I was, man, that was, I mean, for the big guys, they struggled. <laughs> right. There was a phantom pilot, famous burner, who was famous. And I actually met him in, uh, last year at Pensacola Air Show and asked him about the legend of this, what he did. He was so, he was struggling in the phantom, which is a big manly jet, to stay in formation through the one hour, sometimes one plus training stories twice a day, winter training, six days a week, twice a right. day. I mean, it's just, it's painful physically, and he couldn't do it. He, his hand and arm would give out. He couldn't complete a training sortie. He says, hey, Burner, you've got to finish a sortie. We've got to cut you loose, brother, and bring somebody else back. You, you, gotta, you can't not finish the training sortie with us. you got to do yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. A lot of desperation. He secretly had his crew chief bring ordnance tape, and he taped his hand to the stick with ordnance tape. Wow. <laughs> now, if he had, had had to eject, oh, it'd be which happened in a phantom, especially they lost a lot of airplanes. Uh, he was going to lose that arm, yeah. but Burner was willing to give up his right arm 
to be successful with the Blue Angels. That's how desperate guys could be. I'd give my right arm to be a blue. Yeah, man, exactly, yeah. So there I was. In the A6, there we were, right? And we just rounded the tip of India heading towards the Persian Gulf. We were It was Blue Water Ops at that point. And it was my 26th birthday. And day, uh, Daytime or nighttime, Yogi? This was a daytime, early afternoon flight. And our mission that day was overhead tanker. Take off, take the okay. excess fuel from the tanker, from the cycle in front of you. And then you hang out at 8,000 feet. Other planes take off and some of them come up and get gas at the beginning of the flight and then go off and do their missions while as while others go off and do their missions and then come get gas at the end of the flight for landing. So it's really busy at the beginning and end. And in the middle, it's just drone in circles in the sky at 8,000 feet above the carrier. So we were about halfway through the cycle, about 45 minutes into it. And one of our drop tanks, the fuel wasn't transferring from the drop tank into the plane. And so therefore wasn't usable. And that's in the A6 happened, I don't know, what do you say, Mark, 10% of the time. And the way you fix it is the pilot porpoises the plane. He moves the stick back and forth and he just porpoises the plane, causing some negative Gs and it unsticks the valve. It's really no big deal. So Mark, he pointed at the fuel gauge and we'd been watching it. And I shook my head and I kind of made a motion with my hand for him to you know, move the stick. So he sped up a little bit and he started to porpoise the plane. And then the weirdest thing happened. My helmet touched the canopy of the, pl- of the plane. And I literally, the first thought that went through my head was I forgot to strap in my seat straps and I'm floating, you know, up in the, <laughs> up and up and, and hitting the cockpit. I'm like, shit, right. I'm going to, you know, I got to fix that. And then there was a bang, like a shotgun going off. And then there was a pop as the plane decompressed. And then I had 275 knots of wind in my face, God. which is interesting. And my first thought was that the canopy, the top of the canopy had, had popped off. So I tried to duck down beneath the windscreen and beneath the dashboard and I couldn't get out of the wind. So I thought, well, maybe the windscreen had popped out, you know, and I'm getting all this wind and but still I can't get out of the wind and I'm still sitting in my seat and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I look to my left and where I should have seen Mark's right thigh, because we sit side by side, he's a little bit in front of us, a couple inches in front where I should have seen his thigh, I'm looking through the top of the canopy down at the top of his head. I am sitting in my ejection seat from the waist on up outside the plane. That's a sight I will never forget. Honestly, I will never forget that sight. Did you think you were having an out-of-body experience or something? (laughs) It was was just like, what the the fuck? Um, Well, then my helmet and oxygen ripped off, right? So then then my helmet and oxygen ripped off. So now I truly have all this wind in my face. And I said to myself, I don't know what's going on, but I'm pretty sure something bad's happening. I'm going to eject, right? I could stand up in front of a board and say, "This this was a good decision. So I grabbed the handle between my legs and I pulled and it wouldn't budge. 
It just wouldn't move. I'm like, shit. So then I tried to reach for the handles over, over the top of my head, but I'm a tall guy. I sit pretty high. Actually, a lot of guys in our squadron sat pretty high, but I sit pretty high. And I couldn't, as I'm reaching back for it, the wind is pulling my arms out of, so I can't grab it. So I just pull my arms oh, wow. into to my chest. That's when I realize I can't breathe. I'm suffocating. So because of, the, my feet. because of so much wind was coming at your face? Yeah. So it turns out, I never I get this right. It's either the Bernoulli effect or something, but when air goes by a small opening, it creates a vacuum and it was sucking the air out of my lungs. Oh shit. Yes. So yes. yeah, it's Low like pressure. sucking gas from, mm. from a car. Yeah. So it was uh, cutting the air yeah, out of my get lungs. Air. Couldn't get air in your lungs. So um, I got my arms, you know, across my chest. I'm kicking my feet because suffocating is uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And, you know, they teach you how to, they do all that air crew training and they show you what lack of oxygen is like. And I started feeling the lack of oxygen and the tunnel vision and it starts to go dark. And the last thing I remember is saying, I don't want to die. And then black. Wow. So master, so, pick it up from there. So uh, there I was, or this is no shit or however the sea stories right? start, but, uh, <laughs> Kind of to, to put this whole thing in context, hey, no shit. This, this, was, is... uh, this was a bad day, but it was a bad day and a string of bad days for the air wings. So prior to that, we'd lost three airplanes and two flying days. The day before we pulled into uh, Singapore, two Tomcats had a midair. Keith and I were out flying around, and we we're going to get to do a ACM hop, which you never do in the A6 with another guy in our squadron, another crew in our squadron, and we we're just turning in. And we get a call from uh, Strike, and Strike is the guys that run everything on the uh, aircraft carrier. Strike calls us up and says, your new mission is SAR, which, of course, got our yeah. attention, and they gave us a vector. So search and rescue. Yeah, Tomcat in the water. So well, this, is, this is bad. So we went zipping on over Buster, we call it Go Fast, you know, for an A6. Headed over, and as we got to the spot, we looked down, and there was a kind of a oily residue spot down in the water but there was an s3 and a on a hornet down there already and one of the big dangers out there off the aircraft carrier when anything goes wrong is uh, midair after the mishap when everybody converges so we checked made sure everything was okay and then we got the hell out of there came back and landed and one of the airplanes ended up going into singapore missing six or eight feet of its wing and the other one went down in a ball of fire it got the uh, wing went through right behind the rio through the, uh, the body of the Tomcat, and they went down in a ball of fire, managed to punch out. Oh, good. So we went into Port Singapore. Hey, nobody died. You know, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Pulled out, first day out of Singapore. Tomcat comes in for the break, and the wings didn't auto-program forward, so we stalled the airplane, a beam, the LSO platform. Airplane went upside down. They hung with it until it went right side up. They punched. Airplane splashed in the water. We lost, like I said, three airplanes. Nobody died, so it wasn't that bad, but it was still concerning. It was definitely a black cloud hanging over the air wing. So Keith and I are scheduled to fly the next day. We're doing a tanker hop. And so everybody was on pins and needles and had their uh, pocket checklist out going through all their emergency procedures, you know, just in case because things were going badly. Went out, manned up. I still had the butterflies. We blast off, and like he said, we've been really busy at the beginning of the tanker hop, so we went up, did all our stuff, and 
on station and I was finally starting to relax. <laughs> and then we went Uh-oh. to uh, <laughs> unstick the float valve. So from my perspective, we had a lot of nonverbal communication going on in the A6 because you're sitting right next to the guy pointing at the drop tank and he nods. We all know what we're doing. And the A6 tankers were all the old airplanes. And it was not uncommon in the A6 not only to have stuck float valves and drop tanks, but when you go to fix it, apply negative G to the airplane and both generators drop offline, both generators drop offline, the canopy solenoid switch drops down to a neutral position and the canopy opens up a little bit. So pretty common. So with all that in mind, pull back on the stick, add some power because you're sitting there at uh, max conserve, not going very fast, no G available. Like he said, add some power, pull back on the stick a little bit, bunt the nose and just kind of floated me in the seat. And I hear a bang, feel the, the cockpit depressurize and kind of instinctively duck, look up and I'm looking at the canopy bow looking for it to be open like it always is and it's closed it's like that that's weird eyes go to the canopy switch it's in the opposite up position yeah that's also weird i wonder what's going on and i i looked right and kind of the opposite of yogi's perspective i look right expecting to see his head looking at me going what the hell's going on because that's what i'm thinking and instead of his head i'm looking right. at his thigh like well, that's not good and i just basically followed it back up and over my right shoulder and here's Keith looking down at me. He's got his helmet on, visor down, oxygen mask on. He's looking at me, and I can pretty much see the cartoon exclamation points and question marks <laughs> coming out of his helmet that <laughs> he's looking down. And, you know, none of this makes any sense. It's like, well, why did he eject? Right. But if he ejected, why is he still here? So this is, you know, right. does not compute. And while I'm going did through you guys, this, hey. Master, did you guys have the command eject option so one of you could take both of you out? Or how, how did you get – what was your SOP for that? I'm trying to remember when I don't think that airplane had it. That airplane did not, no. Oh, okay. No. So, yo-yo, you're on your own. Yeah. They were, they were retrofitting. We had some planes in the squadron at that time with command eject but before that there was no command eject it was everybody's on their own but that plane had not been retrofitted yeah so he's he's out there in the wind and what is going on and he got slammed down and then he slammed back up in the in the wind blast and i couldn't see his helmet and oxygen mask leave it was there and then it was just gone it just disappeared and that that's when things wow, started getting ugly fast. i always describe it as an old schwarzenegger movie where he's on mars and uh, he ends up outside the atmosphere and you know what he looked like is his eyes are bulging out and his cheeks are puffed out and that's that's what keith looked like i mean you couldn't take your hands and stretch his eyelids out or his cheeks out as far as they were they were puffed out and every once in a while he'd get slammed out slammed back you guys were doing like two 270 ish knots yeah maybe a little slower than that but probably 250 but you know that's like 275 miles an hour i guess so we'll give him give him that number anyway yeah. doing the math yeah oh, but geez. so my you know i really don't know what's going on here but what i really need to do is slow down was the my primary concern so you know pull the power to idle got the speed brakes coming out and a6 design for battle survivability you can't just throw the flaps and slats out you, 
you isolate the uh, hydraulics. So you have to throw a switch, de-isolate to get hydraulics running back out to the wings so you can do that. Got the flaps and slats going down. Thought, well, you know, we're heavy. I got a lot of gas. I can get lighter if I, if I dump this gas. So I started dumping gas again, just trying to get slow. And we weren't going all that fast, like I said. So we've got AOA, angle of attack indexers uh, that give you slow on speed and fast. And just it sits up in your peripheral vision. On the, the, you're looking forward from the pilot side. So I was slow on the airplane to on-speed optimum angle of attack as the airplane got lighter and as the flaps and slats came out, just slowing it down as much as I can to try and take the load off of Keith. And still not exactly sure what was going on, but he was appeared to be partially ejected was the term that made sense to me. Called up and normally, again, you're on the frequencies you're on, you're on a tanker common frequency on one radio and on the other radio, you're on, on the strike frequency, which is not the what the the air boss, the guy who's running everything around within five miles of the ship and the guy who controls what's going on, on the deck is on. So I came up and said, you know, mayday, 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 it's 515, my band's partially ejected, yada, yada, yada. Gone strike doesn't care and he can't really help. But to his credit, he understood that there was a problem and he reminded me, hey, I need to be on another frequency as I Roger switch button six. So the preloaded frequency on channel six on our radios. Okay. So I switched okay. over and made, they did my whole spiel again. And the, uh, the air boss, and I don't remember his name, but he was uh, an unnaturally calm individual. And of course, for, yeah, for people that don't understand, you can't just come back and land on an aircraft carrier because they have to have everything out of the way and the, the wires ready and the, the ball turned on, all that stuff has to be done. And in mid cycle, their airplanes parked in your landing area so you can't just come back and land but there's a term that we use called emergency pull forward meaning get everything out of the way so i can come back and land and so i, I told the boss what was going on and i told him man i need an emergency pull forward and you know in his very calm voice roger that come on in my beam is partially ejected i'm gonna need an emergency pull forward what's your positive i'm about uh, seven miles behind the ship Come on in. I'll do that. And so this happened. We were about seven miles of beam the ship pointed aft, and I just started a big descending turn to try and get behind the behind the boat. So here we are going down, and Keith is kicking, so I know he's still alive. So that, that was good. He's getting beat up, but he's not dead, so that's good. And somewhere in the descent, he quit kicking. <sighs> and Oh, boy. Yeah. So that was that was not good. And while I was doing everything else, I was periodically snatching views of him over my my right shoulder. And when he quit kicking, like oh shit, looked up and Keith is up there. His arms are spread out to the side. You know, it's called kind of a semi crucifixion pose. His head was turned to the left. His chin was basically on his left shoulder, and he was turning gray and he wasn't moving. Oh. Oh boy. You know, based on everything that had been going on in the air wings, like, oh great, you know, we finally killed somebody. He's my buddy and he's sitting right here. I can touch him and there's nothing I can do for him. <laughs> so that was causing me a fair amount of stress. So I I'd, I'd say, okay, you gotta get yourself together and I quit looking at Keith after that. I'm six miles out as a deck looking. 
Roger, are you setting yourself up for a straight in there, 515? Understand you're setting yourself up for a straight in. That's your comment, Roger. Five, understand your BN is still with you, is that correct? That's affirmative. He's hanging out in the airstream. This Peter's still in here. Roger. 616 Tower, are you copying? Roger, close support starboard. find it interesting going to, you know, how people behave or respond under pressure. You know, you go to, like, go to Sears school and watch how guys are under a whole lot of pressure there. And right. uh, when you first get in the military and you're going through, you know, boot camp or whatever the version of that is, you watch people and how they react and things that stand out. And one of the things that stood out to me was before we left on cruise, I told Keith's wife, Michelle, Hey, don't worry. I'll take care of Keith. And one of the things that hit me is, what am I going to tell Michelle? Because I, I gave her my word I would take care of this guy, and here he is. So this is, you know, what am I going to do? This is not good. Don't want to deal with pissed off Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> you lied. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're coming down, and the the LSOs got to the platform. Somebody gave them the call, and they were out there. And the guy who was the uh, air wing paddles, we call him, air wing LSO, nasty, great guy for a Tomcat guy. But he ended up going on. He was CEO of the Reagan, and then he ended up getting, I think, at least two stars or something like that. Nice. But a uh, really fantastic guy. Again, always completely calm. And so he starts talking to me. Okay, you know, bring it on in. And asking me how the airplane was handling. And I guess at some point, I, I wonder why he's asking that, but kept going. We'll get back to that later. Yeah, Ship's still turning. And... <laughs> I'm still chasing, trying to get online up. And, oh, yeah, we're near the equator, and we've been up at 8,000 feet, and we're about four miles behind the ship, and the front one screen fogs over. It's like, oh, oh. Murphy's Law, here we go. I hadn't even thought of so, that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm cussing. I turn the defog on max, and I'm like, you know, I don't have all that much time. I'm going to have to unstrap where I can reach up and wipe this off so I can see, and about the time I'm getting ready to pop my upper coat fittings, which are what attach you to the parachute, the, the windscreen started to clear. It's like, okay, that's that's good. Boat's still turning. And then here the, the CAG paddles, the LSO, come up and tell the commander of the aircraft carrier, and nobody tells the CO of an aircraft carrier anything. You might respectfully ask him something, but you would never tell him anything. Yeah. And I hear the LSO tell the CO Hey, Captain, straighten out. I'll take the winds. And again, you're kind of that may be the funniest thing I've ever heard. It's like, you know, how does this guy walk with, you know, anatomy that large <laughs> that he tells the CEO of the ship to do something? But That's finally, awesome. the ship starts right. straightening out. It's like, okay. 
Okay, bring it back to the left now. The boss, steady out right here. I'll take the wind. 39, slightly left. Copy. Okay, flying just a little bit low. Roger. Tower, steady out right here. Got 39, slightly poured. I'll take the wind, Cap. Steady enough. But, you know, touchdown, and you can feel the aircraft roll over each wire. Right. And normally after your main mounts hit the wire, it's, you know, what split second before the uh, the hook should catch the wire. Well, I felt the airplane roll over the one wire, the two wire, no, three wire, and I finally no. felt it accelerate. And yeah. So the paddles was calling attitude, attitude, attitude. Okay, just a little bit low. Just a little bit low, come left. That paddle's talked down, I got you. Come a little bit left. A little bit of right rudder. A little bit of right rudder. We're on center line. On center line. A little right for lineup. Don't go high. Don't go high. Attitude, attitude, attitude. So it, 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 you grabbed the three wire? Yeah, so we ended up, yeah. Hook skip one, hook skip two, cut the three. Because you're, we you were a flat attitude. You, your hook wasn't grinding into the into the deck then, I guess. Is it? Yeah, the, the A6, if you didn't hold a fair amount of backstick pressure, it would it would hook skip the, the new airplanes, Hornets, things like that. They don't, they've, they've fixed all those problems. But right. uh, A6 still had that problem. Yeah, caught the three, and it was enough time. For me to think as we're rolling across the wires oh great now i get to test the spool up time of the j52s the engines as we dribble off the end of the deck on my really bad day getting even worse but Boy. finally felt the tug say okay that's great and it was a the least deceleration i've ever felt in a in a trap with the <laughs> with the power and i don't like that second day of the ground war they found ISR assets, uh, Intel surveillance reconnaissance assets. Uh, found, I think it was the Iraqi Sixth Armored Division is going after, is advancing toward the left flank of the Second Marine Division. Is they're punching through. So we found them in the morning, and I was taken off on that one with the uh, salt piers. And at this point, you know, we got the winders are off the planes because there's no air threat. So we're carrying our standard loadout was a six Mark Twenty Rock Eye, which equates to about fifteen hundred submunitions, and our gun. Pretty devastating load, very effective against armor, self-propelled artillery, all that type of stuff. Right. So we F-18 Deltas working the the road that's heading that way, and we hit them, and we come back. We're flying out of our main base, but then we would hit a target, come back to our forward operating base, which is called Tanajib, maybe like 35, 40 miles south of the border, land there, expeditionary field, get loaded up with uh, bombs, quick intel update, maybe hand you a sandwich. And then we'd get ready and, and off we'd go. Uh, there's a great shot of napalm and rock eye. Yeah, napalm. We were the only aircraft that uh, dropped a napalm. I was uh, proud to proud to say that. But, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, man. <laughs> fire from the sky, baby. Yeah, off the top rope with the fire. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so for those that's for those watching on video, not listening on audio. Sorry. I'll try and get those within on Solerowoes.us. I'll try and get some of these photos up within the uh, blog post that covers this episode. So, yeah. 
So we go back for the second one. And remember, Saddam had lit off all the oil fires. So we've got a low ceiling of very black smoke and so on. So we got to we got to get below that to get into the target area. And I think it was like maybe seven, 8,000 feet on that one. So second mission coming up and we're dropping down, like I said, surging two Harriers every five minutes. We come down, break out below. I don't see my lead, but I see the section right in front of us because the F-18, the airborne forward air controller, they're working up and down this road and uh, calling out targets for us and calling out threat. And they said, hey, these guys are hunkered down now. After we hit them in the morning, they were moving. We stopped them. He said, I think they're hunkered down. No threat. Come on down. So when I break out, I look ahead. I Uh-oh. No threat. <laughs> right. Threat is a variable. <laughs> right on. Hey, hey Vapor, <laughs> hold on. I, I got to say, when you say, when I broke out, you mean you came through the over, over yeah. overcast to the undercast, right? Sir, so break okay. out underneath that now. Yeah, okay. When I look out ahead. I can see the section in front of it, which actually was Venom. Uh, Venom was a CEO at 231 at that time. And so I see them pop their flares rolling in. And and I am and I look over and I don't see my lead. So I'm thinking, okay, we, you know, try to join up in him or follow these guys in. And, and we're heading, you know, toward the target area. And that's when I get, I get, I get hit by a service to air missile handheld one, probably an SA 14 is what it's called. And that's, and it hits me in the right rear hot nozzle. And, and you guys would know what this feels like and when you were doing lat low altitude tactics training. So you're down low pulling high G and you hit like your wingman's jet wash. Yes. Plane like yeah. Jump. yeah. That, that's exactly people say, I said, that's what it felt like. Feel like playing jet wash. Like yeah. And, and I'm like, shit. Except when it hits, there's noise also, and all the freaking warning lights uh, light up like at once. And I'm like, shit. Good so times. I Good times. <laughs> I just keep the G in to point south and roll out, look over my shoulder, and the, uh, the wing's on fire. And dude, I sometimes did you think about punching out? Like, so my you- dad. With the wing, did you have, were you carrying napalm on that particular day? Uh, they loaded us up uh, with rock eye up at the, uh, okay. the center. And uh, so I had, I'd just been reloaded with six rock eye again and still had the gun. I, I didn't empty the gun on my first sortie. So I still had rounds in there. And so anyway, I, I keep the turn in. I tell them I'm hit and the F-18 Delta, they see me on fire. And it was a guy time. It was Lieutenant Rob Scanio, call sign meets the pilot. He, uh, yeah, I went to flight school with him. Did you go with me? Yeah, good yeah. dude. I talked yeah. to him later. Great yeah. guy. And he said Major Cronin was in the back seat, and and they saw me get hit on fire. And they, good dudes, they freaking, I mean, shot up to join up on me. They're getting on the phone to the DAS Direct Air Support Center, saying I'm going to get hit because they they thought I was going to punch out any second. And I'm like, no, I said I'm I'm not going to punch out. Old thing my dad taught me. We had a machine shop and and stuff, and he said. This is a kid I just remember he told me one time, liquid burns, vapor explodes. And I'm like, well, I'm just burning right now. It ain't going to explode. And, and I don't want to punch out over top of a division that we've been bombing the piss out of for about the last two or three hours. Right? They're not going to be happy to see. Well, actually, they are going to be happy to see you. You're not going to be happy to see them. are you going to be on that one? It's going to be yeah. a different type of gauntlet. And uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, so so, so le- left wing on fire. You didn't know this. Right but wing. The left, the left right hot. Wing oh, right wing. So yeah. uh, was it the right hot nozzle? Yeah, right rear hot nozzle is a big piece of titanium, very strong, which actually contained a lot of the blast. 
yeah. which was good. So the plane's flying, and you, you just kind of go back to your basics. What do I need to fly? An engine and hydraulic system, because hydraulics yeah. runs on flight controls. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. so people say, what, what, what did you lose? I go, I go, I didn't care what I lost. I always worried about what I had. And at right. the time, I had an engine. Hydraulics were still last, and even though I had the warning lights and stuff. And I go, so the plane's going to fly. And, and, I, and me, you know, is joining up. And so there's my navigation and my BDA, Battle Damage Assessment, to tell me what's going on. And I just remember telling him, I said, let me know when we're across friendly lines or you're, we're away from friendlies so I can jettison these things because things are pretty dynamic on the battlefield, exactly where friendlies were. It was a you know, very dynamic yeah. environment. And yeah. so when you say jettison these things, you, you didn't want to jettison those, those ga- uh, gators. They don't want gators. Uh, the, the, the rock eye. Yeah. You didn't oh, want man. to jettison the rock eye over friendlies. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I didn't see, because I'm a little, that's big know, SA, now. bro. That is yeah. big yeah. situational yeah. awareness. Yeah. Well, the reason because I lost SA is I turned south and I'm like, and I didn't know exactly like, okay, where the hell am I right now? And, and that's why, you know, man's got to know his limitations, right? And if right. you don't know something, fess right. up. And I'm just yeah. like, dudes, let me know when it's safe to jettison. Because the, the way the Marine Corps FAC A, that backseater, they're keeping complete battlefield situational awareness yep. on where units are and stuff. And I know that guy, Major Cronin, is going to know a lot better where friendlies yep. are and when I can jettison than I will. And, yep. and, and the FAC A is your forward air controller airborne. He's in yeah. he's in an OV-10. He in a Bronco? Uh, they, they were in a uh, Hornet. Hornet. Okay. Yeah. So they're Hornet. And so he's the guy calling in airstrikes on various elements. Okay. He was controlling us. So he said, Hey, you're clear now. Jettison the bombs. And they said, All right. Hey, we'll get you back to a Tanajeev. And I'm like, Dude, I'm not going to make it that far. Let's go for Ahmed Al Jaber. Because I remember Al Jaber uh, field there. We were going to use that as a forward operating base to the Harriers if we were going to end up going into Baghdad. Because we didn't, we didn't know how this thing was going to play out long term. Yeah. So, We'd bombed a piss out of run runway, and with the other one, we, we'd left open. But Saddam had put some barricades on it or something. So I said, hey, if you guys can head that way and fly ahead and tell me which runway's open. And so they we got close. They shot ahead. So I'm like, the burn is shot ahead. And he's like, all right, you're right. The one runway, the you know, western one is 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 open. They got some barricades. They got no sweat, dude. I can land in between them. I'm in a freaking Harrier. So I roll in on final, and I go to put the gear down. and. Uh, the gear don't come down. So the, the outward stay up, nose and main kind of drop with some gravity, but I'm not going to aim down and lock. So I, I use that emergency pneumatic system to try to blow them down. And the systems doesn't, nothing changes. I said, what do you guys see? It says, well, it looks like your nose and main are down, but your outriggers definitely aren't. But I'm not getting down and locked on any of them. I think they just kind of fell with some gravity, but they're probably just still hanging there. Yeah. And so hey, like, what, well, what, what kind of speed are you flying? Well, I'm slowing down now, turning in. So I'm probably below probably 200 knots. Okay. Uh, I'm setting up for kind of, I kind of entered like a base leg and I'm turning on final. I think, well, I'll do a vertical landing. So I start feeding the nozzles in. And of course, the right rear hot nozzle doesn't move. It's jammed. So three nozzles go down. The one doesn't. So as you guys know, I get a lot of yaw because the one nozzle on the right side is yawing the plane. And the rule in the Harrier is what? You put the nozzles in, it does something funny, put them back where they put were. Put them back, yeah. Yep, put them back. So I put them back out, and I turn down. I go, all right, well, that's not going to work, but maybe I can do some type of RVL, rolling vertical landing or something like that. You know, I'm kind of sitting there going, this plane is flying, and it's a weapon system, and I'm responsible for it, and I don't want to you know, lose it. 
So yeah. I turn back around. I tell the guy, so I'm on downwind and I'm kind of talking to these guys. Hey, I'm Are you gonna- still on fire? Are you still on fire at this point? Finally, it's the right wing is burned out now. So the right flap is gone. And, and here's something else. Remember, you don't want to know something else. Composite wings. They don't weaken with heat. Remember when oh, yeah. the AC-130 got on fire, that wing folded because metal weakens with heat. Yeah. And God bless McDonald Lugus and the engineers. Mm. That wing didn't lose any structural integrity due to fire and heat. It's it, just me- it, did, it just made it harder, probably. Yeah. It's not going to bend at all now. Yeah. So, I mean, there's another case. I mean, tragic. We lost, what, 13 people in the AC-130? Wing yeah. caught on fire, that metal weakened, folded up, everybody died. So yeah. here I am, the flaps completely burned away. Uh, Salt told me that later. He was above me. He said, yeah, you just had a big square missing in your wing with a flap burned away. But I said, man, the wing was fine. Yeah. Anyway, so kind of on approaching a beam and thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to try this, see what happens. And about this time, the hydraulics finally bleed out completely. Oh, so shit. the plane pitches up, rolls over. And when I remember they taught us to elevate our head 12 degrees for an ejection and, you know, okay. but so I do that. And as I kind of look up, all I see is a sand dune. I go, shit, hope the freaking seat works. So I pull the handle and I go out in the low altitude, low airspeed mode. So for the listeners, the Harrier had four ejection modes. The low altitude, low airspeed mode was designed to save the pilot. If you were in a stabilized and 50, 60 foot hover that you would be able to, in the plane, if something went wrong you would be able to get punched out of the plane and get a swing in the parachute before you hit the ground. So I'm slow enough because I'm, I forget when the low speed mode kicked in. It was, I think around 200 some knots. So I'm below, I'm below 200 knots and obviously low. Um, I think when I rolled, I was about 900 feet or something. And so when I punched, I talked to the engineers later and they kind of figured out I was about 850 feet inverted 30 degrees nose down. And, so I go out and engineers later told me, said about 139 feet out, you got seat man separation based on your weight and everything. So I pull the handle, heads up, big flash from the deck cord that's around the canopy. So we go straight out. So unlike Goose and Top Gun, we don't have to wait for the canopy to clear. The detonation cord blows a hole. We go right through it. Right through it. Yep. Yeah. Off we go. And if that doesn't work, there's a spike behind our seat. Yeah. That'll make You're it going work. anyway, bro. <laughs> <laughs> blow or no blow. <laughs> there you go. So shoot out. Seat man separation. It's very high G. I remember, I remember looking at my feet, seeing a flame, thinking to myself, why am I looking at my feet? I was just looking up a second ago, but I think That's 30 fine. Gs will do that to you. So I flame <laughs> at my plane as I'm leaving it. And like, there's a plane upside down. There's the sky, and I'm heading down towards the ground. Seatman separation, and then of course, flying through the air, and the spreader gun goes off to spread the parachute. And right. that was probably one of the most violent things because now you're going that way on 150 miles an hour, and the parachute suddenly opens, and man, that snaps the shit out of you. So I hit, and I'm going spinning sideways, going around, and as I'm kind of spinning, kind of out of control. I, I actually see the plane hit and I see this explosion. I go, oh, there's my freaking plane hitting, which at least gave me SA because I'm like, okay, the runway's to my east. The plane is to the south because I was trying to land kind of to the north. And I'm like, that's the way I want to go. <laughs> and anyway, so I, I stopped, I kind of stabilized there and go through my, remember IROC, inflate your raft. It was the acronym we right. learned uh, when we went out. Right. So, yeah. 
you know, check the canopy, uh, release your raft, you know, do your options, make sure your canopy is okay and so on. But the options are like visor down, mask on or off, gloves on or off, that type of stuff. And I don't have a lot of time to do the options. And, and but I just make sure the canopy is good. I look down, I go, shit, here comes the ground. So eyes on the horizon. Shit, they talk. And I'll tell you what, man, but training is amazing. You guys remember we're sitting in Pensacola going through AI and they yeah. had us jumping off the, the thing and landing on the wrestling mats and rolling. Yeah. 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 And the PLS. I'm telling you, that, that shit went through my mind. And I'm like, look at the horizon, point your toes, bend your knees. Isn't that funny? Yeah. This is just wrote, yeah. Training, baby. Yeah. Training. You know, I think back to our show with Bonnie. She said that very thing. Adrenaline doesn't give you super knowledge for no apparent reason, but it gives you an amazing recall. Absolutely right. And you get time <laughs> compression too, which I'll talk about in a second. Yeah. yeah. So you go through this stuff and it comes back like yesterday. And so when I hit the wind, I'm sitting going, okay, this is good. The wind's blowing me sideways. I'm going to roll. This is going to work out just fine. And right above the ground, wind shift. And I turn and I'm going nose on. And I'm like, oh, this is going to hurt. Oh, so I kind of pull my knees a little higher, grab the rises, and as rise my feet, I pull as hard as I can and try to twist the land on my side. And I just plow into the freaking ground. Luckily, it was sand. And, um, oh, man. Now, remember when they threw us in the pool in Pensacola? Yes. I'm guessing it wasn't nice and cool and relaxing like the pool in Pensacola. Uh, just a guess. Honest, pull yes. on more rises and it flips you over. Yes. And, dude, the pool went right back in my brain. I pulled on a riser, flipped me under my back, and I reached up, grabbed the coke fittings, and popped them. And man, yeah, because you're getting drug. You're getting drug across the ground. Yes. Yeah. 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 So then I just lay there for a second. And but it's an interesting change because <laughs> one moment, King Kong in the most advanced aerospace technology right. mankind has produced yeah, man. right outside that canopy it's 1 million bc this was like 2007 ish the max show at the time was a little bit crazy let's be honest about it i won't say who he is but anybody that was there would probably vouch for that and juice you, you guys might know juice but he was oh, flying. Yeah. Great, yeah. great guy. Yeah. Great instructor. I, I did my my safer solo check with him. He was flying. I think they were doing a fam sortie with a, a newer student, and yeah. their nose gear wouldn't come down. And like you guys know, that there's a procedure for that to emergency extend the gear. But I guess the mag CEO on his like UK exchange tour at some point had had seen this happen, and one time they did the emergency extension and the nose gear didn't come down and it like cracked the frame really bad. And so the second time they didn't extend the note, they didn't do the emergency extension. They put a mattress underneath it and it was like, it saved the day supposedly. Well, hey. so, so I, I've, I'm seeing yeah. this doesn't sound like yeah. it's going to be a good, right. it's like, hold on. I have to jump in here. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I have yeah. to ask. Yeah. Asking for a friend. Yeah. 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 Hey, so, yeah. For a friend. So the like I said, the Max Yo was he was also kind of a micromanager. So he's listening to the 203 bass frequency. So he hears juice and the ODO kind of troubleshooting and trying to figure it out. And the Max Yo jumps on the radio and orders him not to do the NATOPS procedure. And you you hear juice on the tape, he's like, Okay, understand you're ordering me. Directly ordering me not to follow Natops. It's like, that's right. Don't blow the gear down, blah, 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 whatever. So, 
He's like, I want you to land on this mattress. So they, they bring a mattress out to, I think it was the South pad. So, so and who, who has a mattress laying around? I, mean, I don't know. How, how does that start? <laughs> Go to the barracks and get a mattress. It's, a great, it's a great question. It's a great question. But they find a mattress and they strap it down with like some of those tr- truck straps or whatever they managed to try and tie it down with. Which, so he comes down, he's going to VL. It's like looking pretty good until he gets to about vertical 10 landing. feet. Yep. And it's just, yeah, he's doing a vertical landing. And it just freaking sucks the whole mattress oh, through yeah, I saw that coming. the engine. You've probably seen some, there's pictures of it all over the internet. If you Google like Harrier mattress and it, you know, destroys the motor or whatever. They lands, they're both okay. Both the pilots are okay. And they get out. But that's, that's not even the end of the story though, because no. eventually they, they get into the hangar, you know, they, they get it on jacked up. They, they tow it into the hangar. They try the emergency extension, and of course it works, 4.0. Nose gear comes down. No problem. (laughs) But then there's a a Marine that's like huffing paint, you know, because why not? Um, Yeah. And and he he drives a tug into the side of this thing. Oh, shit. It damages it even more. So that was was the end of of Harrier versus Mattress. Well, you know what they say. You can't fix stupid...
Why? Because I gotta! 